0: The title of the message is Jesus' Heartbeat. I want you to think about a heartbeat for a minute. It's kind of like the rhythm of our lives. It's blood pushed through the body. It keeps us alive and we can't function properly without a strong heartbeat. You know, have you ever heard someone say, oh, my heartbeat about someone? Have we heard that? Yeah, I mean, we're, what, a couple of weeks away from Valentine's Day. So, you know, if you haven't heard it before, maybe you will this time around. I mean, we all have things we may use this term to describe. So there's guitars, <coughs> Blair. Um, that's, that's what he's like with guitars. For some, it might be coffee or footy, maybe, possibly. But some of these wouldn't make a difference to us if we didn't have them. Jesus, on the other hand, his life was entirely lived from his heartbeat. And I'll, reveal, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But he lived his life from his heartbeat. And as his followers, we should aim to do the same. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the light in the darkness. This morning, I just pray that you would, you would be here with each and every one of us. I pray over... Bayside, Frankston, I pray for boldness. I pray for your love to fall afresh on them. I pray for their faith to be stirred and for them to be filled to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Wrap them in your arms of love this morning. Let them be refreshed, encouraged, empowered and equipped. And I just pray that you would speak your words through me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So who's excited for today? We can do better than that. Who's excited for today, church? Come on. There we go. That's better. We're allowed to make a little bit of noise in church. Like Warwick getting up and having some energy. It's good. We need some energy in this place. So over this weekend at Chalt, last night and this morning, Pastor Rob has shared uh, this message. uh, And this morning, I've jimmified it. So we'll see how that goes. So if you want to open your Bibles... Um, we're going to be looking at a big segment of text from Matthew chapter 23. I'm reading from the NLT translation and it will be on the screen. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 of Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. And yes, I just want to preface, this is Jesus talking, just in case you know your perception of Jesus is that it's just always gentle and nice. This passage is Jesus uh, talking. And the thing is, religion can do that. Religion can sometimes, when it's all about rules and regulations and tick boxes, it can crush people. And faith without action, I think, is, is religion. And the Pharisees convey, conveyed that behaviour meant that people belonged. It was all, you've got to act the same way as us and then we'll treat you with respect. That's not on. Like, that's not right. We're to love people, right? I don't want to drag this on, but I've witnessed this happen to friends. I've seen the damage it can do. So we've got to not be like the Pharisees. and I'm going to unpack this a little bit. From verse 5, everything they do is for show. So that's the Pharisees. On their arms they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside and they wear robes with extra long tassels and they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honour in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. So they're kind of egomaniacs, I guess. They're pompous, self-important. And the hierarchy of the time had them at the top because of their position. And they were pretty quick and sure to show it off. For them, it's all about the externals. It's got nothing to do with what's going on on the inside. But it's like, look at how long and big my, my sleeves are with prayers. Look at how long my tassels are. It's all about who they are. And then Jesus pronounces seven sorrows, or in some translations, woes on the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And a woe is an impending forecast of misery. Now, I know that this sounds all dark and depressing at the moment. I promise this will this will pick up because in these sorrows and in these woes there are some really key lessons for us in a positive nature. So I just want you to go with me on this. So from verse 13, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Ouch. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. You shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, you will be severely punished. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Just to remember again, this is Jesus speaking. This is in the Bible. So go with me on this. It's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but this is leader, protector Jesus, standing for truth and love and justice and grace and mercy. Verse 23. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Now, to us, that means very little, But in Jesus' day, that would have been a roaring insult and joke. So the people sitting around would have been laughing hysterically at that. The Pharisees, on the other hand, would have been insulted and embarrassed. And shortly after, they arrested Jesus, put him through a mock trial, beat him and murdered him on a cross. So much so was that insult. Verse 25. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. So I read this as our heart and soul is more important than the externals. It doesn't matter who we are or where, where we're at, what our life has been like, it's what's on the inside. It's our heart for people. It's our heart for God. It's the character is above calling and position and ability. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And this is significant because Jesus is saying that they were unclean and therefore excluded in their society. They were the ones that were saying, dictating who was in or who was out. But this is Jesus saying, well, actually, you guys have got it wrong and you're the ones that are actually on the outside. You know, we, we know those, those people, whether they're in church or outside of church, who think they're the in crowd. We know what they're like. They think that they're too good for everybody, that they're better than everybody. They exclude you because you look different or sound different or do something a bit different. That was the Pharisees. And Jesus came to change that culture. In verse 29, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed." Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in killing the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. And that's Jesus forecasting his own demise at the hands of the Pharisees. Snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. Okay, breathe. It's kind of full on. And, you know, I feel a bit awkward reading that, but sometimes we've got to actually look at the negative to see the positive. And there's a lot of positive that comes out of this. You know, when Jesus says the judgment will fall on this generation, it happened 40 years after he said that. It was called the Great Tribulation, which started in mid-A.D. 66 and finished in A.D. 70. And the armies of Rome, led by Prince Titus, destroyed Israel and sacked Jerusalem. The Holy of Holies, their temple was desecrated. So the things that, made, that gave them their office and their standing to make them be able to exclude or include people was destroyed. Their gold was melted and they flipped all the stones to scoop up the gold. And for the Pharisees, the temple desecration meant that they were separated from God. That was their hell. They were separated from God. When they had been the in crowd and the ones who could talk to him, they were separated. So question, why was Jesus so scathing of the religious leaders of his day? And we've read all of these insults and the the harsh language here. And it all has to do with a Latin expression... Imitatio Dei, which is the imitation of God. And as followers of Jesus, that should be what we aim for. The question is, does it always happen that those who come in his name, do we imitate God? And so it's about, this is what God is like. Now imitate him. It's also known as the imago Dei, the image of God. And we see that in Genesis 1.27, when he created man and woman. In his image. We are created in the image of God, the Imago Day, And we're to express that image in the way that we live. So I want you to think about it. What's your thoughts on the Imago Day? Like when you think about God, what is the one thing, if you had to boil it down to one thing, what is the one thing that you see in God that you want to imitate? What's that one image of God that you want to reflect in your life? And Jesus taught about the Imago day, and his Imago day was compassion. In Luke six thirty six it says, Be compassionate, just as your father is compassionate. For Jesus, compassion wasn't just one of many virtues just to, to tick off, but everything he did was encompassed in compassion. Compassion was Jesus' heartbeat. It was the lens and the paradigm through which Jesus saw all of life. He taught his followers to have this same amargo day in their interactions with one another and the created world. And if we're to become like Jesus, then hopefully our hearts can beat with compassion too. And in the New Testament, the word for compassion was also written as love. More specifically, agape, which is active love or compassion because compassion is a sign and an outworking of active love and this was what drove everything jesus did so compassion so you've got com which means with and patio, which means to feel so compassion is to feel with you know what that's like you know but in order to feel with somebody you need to actually know the person You need to to know who they are, where they're coming from. We need to actually spend that time getting to know them so that we can feel with them. To not harden our hearts, to not close our hearts off, but be willing to feel with. And I reckon that, you know, we do okay at that. You know, all of us have our moments where we could do it better, but I think we do okay And that's what this world needs. We need to be able to feel with them rather than judging them and calling down the fires of hell and whatever we we may do to judge people and ostracize them and alienate them. We need to feel with them. Let's let them experience the love of our heavenly father through us. Amen? In order to show compassion, we need to be willing to be vulnerable with people so we can feel with them. And I know for some of us guys, that can be tough. You know, Steve-O and I, I think we're probably a little bit blokey blokes, but we've developed a friendship where we can be real and feel with each other through the stuff that we're going through. And that's the heartbeat of Jesus flowing through us because we're willing to go, you know what? Might be uncomfortable, might be a bit awkward, but he's my brother. I'm going to stand with him. I want to feel with him. I want to journey with him. And so as a church community, we need to be willing to feel with each other in order to love fully, to build up each other, to encourage each other. And compassion comes from the Hebrew word for womb. So to feel the things of someone else in a deep way. The KJV mentions bowels, so essentially would say that your bowels would be moved for those who are suffering. (laughs) I'll leave you with that picture to, (laughs) to contemplate that. To be compassionate is to... Be like a womb to give life to another, to nourish, to care for, and embrace, especially in times of suffering. And this comes from the core and the depths of who we are. It came from the core and the depths of who Jesus was. And being his followers it should come from the depth and the core of us. And that's what the Holy Spirit's for, because he helps us to actually tap into that. Because for some of us, it's really hard to to be compassionate. But the Holy Spirit enables us to do that. And I want to say it's not just a female quality. I'm going to try and say this Hebrew word. I may completely stuff this up. But it's raham, I think is how you say it. And it's a masculine noun. And that's the word for compassion. So those people who may think, oh, no, that's just a feminine thing. That's a thing for the ladies. It's actually a masculine noun. So, guys, you don't have an excuse to not show compassion because it is a masculine word. And, you know, I feel like the word gets diluted sometimes. You know, you hear people say, oh, show compassion, be nice. And, we're, you know, we do it out of obligation rather than this deep sense of being moved for your brothers and your sisters and for the people out in our community. In Genesis 43, we see that Joseph, we, we, we read of Jesus, uh, Joseph uh, reuniting with his brothers. Um, and if you, you recap his story, as a 17-year-old, they threw him down a well and basically sold him for slavery and told their dad that he was dead because they were jealous of him. Fast-track 13 years and Joseph's the most powerful person in Egypt and his brothers and his family are coming to him. Because they need some help. And they don't recognize that it's him because he's now 30. And in Genesis 43, 30, it says, Then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. He went into his private room where he broke down and wept. Raham. He was compassioned. He was wombed for his brother. And this particular brother was Benjamin, who was his only full-blood brother. All his other brothers had different mums, but Benjamin came, was from his mum and father as well. So he wombed his bro. You could say he was a womb man. Yeah, that fell just as flat as it did for Pastor Rob, so I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. Uh, And then you think about God the Father, in Jeremiah 31 20, it says, is not Israel still my son, my darling child, says the Lord. I often have to punish him but I still love him. I imagine parents, you've experienced that at some point, that you love your kids, but you still have to punish them from time to time. Um, That's why I long for him, and surely we'll have mercy on him. Raham. God feels deeply for his people. We follow a deeply personal God who feels deeply for for each and every one of us. Amen. And if you hear nothing else today, hear that that God feels so deeply from the core of himself for you. And in the Good News Bible, this says, my heart goes out to him. In the Young's literal translation, it says, I do thoroughly remember him still. Therefore, have my bowels been moved for him. I do greatly love him. The Bible is encouraging us to act and react below the head. Sometimes we just... In our head we, we, we think it, we overthink it, but our heart's below our head and our womb is even further below that. When we reflect the image of God, the Imago day, we will feel deeply the suffering of another person and be moved by that suffering to do something about it. For me, one of those things is mental health. I've had a lot of friends journey their own mental health issues. I've journeyed my own I've seen friends commit suicide because of their mental health issues and this is something for me that I'm wounded by that there's something in the core of me I can't just stand by and watch that and we all have something that drives us to feel with there's something that drives us to feel that compassion and to walk in compassion so church our mandate is to bring people into encounter with their heavenly father so he can bring transformation Who knows that it becomes easier to bring people to that place through compassion and love as opposed to religiosity and rule keeping. It's so much easier when we are inclusive, when we are letting people in and come and experience God than just putting up a sign going, if you are this, 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 this or this, you cannot come in. We need to be more willing to actually show that compassion, to feel with people let them experience the love of God through us so compassion is to feel as God feels to act as God acts to bring life and nourishment to others to be compassionate just as your father is compassionate that was Jesus amargo day Jesus heartbeat and that is to be his followers heartbeat too if we are to become like Jesus but that wasn't the amargo day of the Jewish world in Jesus day it was leviticus 19:2 be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so we see this constant clash in the Gospels of the Pharisees and their their rule keeping and their tick boxes, and Jesus coming and just being like, you know what? I love you. You have value. You have worth. And it was completely cu- countercultural. Two different frames of reference. So first-century Jewish society was based on the purity system as outlined in Leviticus 11 to 26. If you're game enough, you can go and read those 16 chapters, but it's a it's a bit of a hard read, so I'd you know, maybe have a coffee or three uh, while you're going through to get through it. Um, but it was all about people and things that were pure or impure, clean or unclean, righteous or sinner, in or out. By the time of Jesus, this had developed into an entire hierarchical social system, much of which was dependent on a person's birth. I think we've got a couple of slides. So at the top of the chain were the priests and the Levites. They didn't choose that. They were born into that, and they were the top of the food chain. The Pharisees and other religious leaders was mostly by birth, but for some it was privilege because they were ticking all the check boxes. And you had Israelite men, Israelite women, obviously, there by birth. Converts, by choice because they're converting to judaism gentiles you're a gentile by birth illegitimate and disabled birth tax collectors and sinners well tax collectors is probably by choice because that was their profession and for sinners birth but here sinners does not refer to it to all people as in modern christian belief sinners were a particular group of people that were considered to be at the bottom of society they were impure dirty people untouchables and the notoriously wicked and that would feature people like the homeless prostitutes those with hiv aids you're sick and it's your own fault all of those sort of things would be in this system would be considered at the bottom of the food chain they couldn't interact with anyone and jesus came against this purity culture and replaced this culture with compassion now, hear me, purity is, is important, absolutely. There are things that we strive for when it comes to purity and holiness, but they should never be to the detriment of compassion and love for people. Purity culture was all about the external and the ego, not the internal heart relationship with God and living that out. The religious had nothing to do with sinners. Jesus hung out with everyone. But we read a story about him spending time at, with tax collectors and sinners There's one night he's having dinner with the Pharisees and a woman comes and washes his feet. Now, this woman would have been excluded on on the outer. And the Pharisees were outraged. They would have been like, if he was really a prophet, he'd know who this woman was and not allow her near. Instead, Jesus forgives the woman. He shows love and compassion. It's a clash of cultures. The pure were the physically whole. The impure were the disabled or maimed, the chronically ill, lepers, eunuchs, shepherds and other unclean professions and the abjectly poor. Men were thought of as being purer than women. Women were considered to be second class citizens who were frequently unclean because of childbirth and the monthly menstruation cycle and would need to go through purification to be able to be considered clean. All Gentiles were impure and unclean all the time simply because they weren't born Jewish. Imagine that in society today. Oh, you're not born Australian. You're unclean. You're impure. You're not welcome. What? I love the fact that we're in a church where there are so many different nationalities and cultures represented. I love it. I don't understand the exclusion. Even, you know, it was a terrible system. And unfortunately, it does still happen in some places. For me, um, you know, this, this is a legitimate term. I know some people might think it's swearing, but back in the days, I'm considered to be a bastard because I was born out of wedlock. And so I was lucky enough that it was at the end of, end of the 80s that it wasn't as big of a taboo no-no, but my parents copped it for a little while. I copped it through high school a little bit still because I was born outside of wedlock. It may not be that today, but there are other things where we ostracize and exclude people. We need to not allow ourselves to be stuck in the purity culture but move into that compassion culture yeah. to extend a hand to our brothers and sisters yeah. no matter the differences. It is countercultural but it is also transformational. Yeah. I think we do okay, but we can never show too much compassion. And the pure were often wealthy because wealth was seen as a blessing from God. And the whole system was that you could go into into the temple and you put some coins in and get a blessing and then you're clean and pure. For the poor, if they were living far away from Jerusalem, one, they had to somehow get to Jerusalem, then they had to get into the temple and actually pay the fee to be purified or to be clean. Now, if you're living in poverty, one, you're probably going to struggle to come up with the ability to travel there, let alone do that. So it was this vicious cycle of the rich and the pure were just at the top of the tree and the poor were at the bottom of the tree and that's just how it was. And it meant the poor could only interact with the poor, they could only trade with the poor and that was it. So Mel's going to put up uh, an image on the screen, the purity map. Just leave it up for a little bit, Mel. People can have a read of it. They call this the 10 degrees of holiness. I think a better name for it is the 10 degrees of separation. You read that Israel was holier than any other land and then even then there's even more and more steps. And so different people would have been in different steps and that was their level of holiness. And so the entire Jewish world was ordered by this map of purity. And into this world Jesus came to order the world not by purity but by compassion, by agape love. We go from an austere, purity-focused deity who doesn't let you near, he keeps you at arm's length, to a God who opens his arms with love and compassion and welcomes us in, amen? Hallelujah, Hallelujah. that is our God. And so the Imago Day was changed. Changed from, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus says there's a higher and better way to live. Be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. And he deliberately replaced the core value of purity with the imago Day of compassion. That is the dominant quality of God's character. Compassion is Jesus' heartbeat. And compassion is to be the prevailing characteristic of a community that mirrors God. At Jesus' death, the temple veil was torn. That big thing of separation was torn. That was God's welcome sign to the world that you are loved, you are valued, you have a place in my house. There is no separation between us and God. Amen. Uh, Galatians 3.28 says, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think that says it all. That's Paul writing after the fact of what Jesus has done. Paul got it, so we need to get it. And that's why Bayside Church's mission statement is so powerful, vital and biblical. Our mission is to be a Christian community who work together for justice, mercy and faith. And we've been asked, why did we put faith last? Because that's what the Bible says. For the scripture that it's from, it says in Matthew 23, 23. Uh, For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. But just because it's last does does not mean it is less important. You know, you think about Paul, he says, we have faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of all is love. But we are to do justice, mercy, and faith. Don't be focused on your externals or the externals of others. Focus on love and compassion what's on the heart don't be pedantic about purity but careless with compassion for example you know they were the pharisees in that scripture were so focused on people tithing and how much but they've forgotten about justice mercy and faith let's be a compassionate people and i love our church and the fact that we are focused on courageous love empowering people and that we work together for justice mercy and love and we have a the ability as Christians here today to choose to break the purity culture if it exists in us and to live with a love and compassion that brings people in. Amen.